morning we're going to continue on in our sermon series on 1 Peter. Uh, and if you haven't already, I would encourage you to read through this entire book ahead of time before you show up on Sunday mornings. I, I think this is a very good read. Uh, it's a, a short read and it's very straightforward and easy to comprehend in my opinion. And last week we gave you the thesis, in my opinion, of the entire book of the first of First Peter. And I believe that the thesis of, of Peter's writing here is the holy living church. The holy living church. Uh, in chapter 1, we see Peter offering his greetings to the various churches throughout the Roman province. And then he goes on to describe the blessings of a life of faith in Jesus Christ in times of persecution and hardships. And he encourages his disciples to remain holy and sanctified, even though the world around them doesn't look that way. And then we get to chapter 2, which we're going to study today. And it's my hope and prayer that we can not only finish chapter 2 today, but also dive into chapter 3 as well. So for those of you who come to Wednesday night Bible class, we'll see how well this goes. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read together verses 1 through 5. Michael, don't worry about changing any slides yet, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Follow along with me as we study together. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I want to give you a little bit of historical context and information. I don't think I did that great of a job last week really fleshing out what was going on in the Roman provinces at this time. You see the Christians, the early disciples during this time period, and when Peter was writing this letter, were in the midst of severe social injustice. And whenever you face injustice of any kind, it tends to make you bitter. Amen? Whenever you face any kind of injustice, it makes you want to put your dukes up, and it makes you upset, and it makes you bitter. The Christians at this time were experiencing severe injustice under the rule of Domitian. And if you haven't heard of this character, I would really encourage you to go and read some historical accounts about Domitian, who was the Roman emperor at this time. And 
he was an interesting guy because he thought that uh, everyone should love and admire him. You see, he had this spirit about him that was very narcissistic in nature. He thought he was God's gift to the world. And many writers and historians say that he was really a tyrant and that he was a person who persecuted many people throughout the Roman provinces um, that, that didn't fall down and really pay him homage. So it wasn't just the Christians that he mistreated, but everybody who didn't think he was God's gift to the world, you see. And Christians were assumed to be a part of a religious cult that had this identity to bring about this uprising. You remember what the scripture says? When Jesus came to the world, they thought that he was going to be their king, right? And that he was going to overthrow all the powers and authority and restore this amazing, peaceable kingdom under this Jewish law. You guys remember that, right? So, so this Christian identity, this Christian religion was one that people thought was very cultish in nature. So they had a tough time living in this society. Domitian was a man that people didn't care for too much. Even some of his home people in so much that he was assassinated while holding office by the court officials. So as we read through chapters 2 and 3, I want you to keep that in mind as we think about some of Peter's language to the church in the face of this great injustice and persecution. So keep that in mind as we continue on and look through this text. Michael, can you put up this first slide? I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. And by the way, I say this every Sunday. There's a sermon outline in your bulletin. Please fill that out uh, and fill in the, the, the red letters up on, uh, on the screen on your outline. I think it will greatly bless you in your learning um, this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9 says, But you are a chosen people. And this would make sense because if you think about it, they felt like outcasts. They felt as if they had no purpose and they were, were, were treated very poorly and they were marginalized. So we see Peter writing them here and saying, look, you guys are special. As disciples of Christ, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's, and I love this one here, God's special possession. Did you know that's what you are this morning, church? God's special possession. For what purpose? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Oh, I don't know about you, but I, I hope and pray that we have people here this morning that just want to praise God for the purpose of praising him. Just because he's so good. Just because he woke you up this morning and put breath in your lungs, he deserves praise, right? You see, growing up in the South the way I did, you see, my, my grandparents and my mother and father would often just shout out and say, praise the Lord at random times. Just because God was so good and just because they realized that he made them their special possession. Praise God this morning for his goodness, amen? Praise him. He's worthy of it. We're called to do that so that we can share the hope that we have with others, even though the world around us doesn't view it that way, right? 
One of the greatest tools of evangelism that we have is just to praise the Lord in front of people. I do that often. I'll be at the grocery store. Isn't God good today? And people go, wait, what? God is good, isn't he? <laughs> God bless you, not just when people sneeze, but all the time. God is good, and it gets people's attention. And that's why Peter here calls them a chosen people to build up their confidence in this system of injustice that they were living in. So this morning, I, I want to I look, at, before uh, we get into some, some practical things, I want to look at uh, the next slide, which is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 12. So since we know this, and since Paul was saying to these, these, these early disciples, you are God's chosen possession and people, here's some things that he wanted them to do, okay? And we get to verse number 12. It says this, live such good lives among the pagans... Now, I wouldn't encourage you to call your non-Christian friends pagans, okay? But that's what they are, people who don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, people who don't think God is necessary for their lives and well-beings. Live such good lives among those type of people that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. So this begins to make sense in thinking about Domitian and the, the injustice that they were receiving. He said, look, look, people are going to accuse you just out of the blue for wrongdoing. What I want you to do is just keep your example. If you have anything, it's your example and don't lose it. That's what you have. And when you've lost your example, you've lost a lot. So if you look on your outline, I, I wanted to pose a question to you this morning, and I wanted to exegete this kind of text here and process this together. And the question that I have for you this morning is, how can we learn to better our example? Have you given that some thought? How do we learn to better our example? Now, I know everyone here is already a good example in the context and environments that they find themselves in, but I think we can always learn to do better and to be better. So this morning, I want to spend some time talking about this. How do we become or how do we better our examples amongst these people that Peter describes? So I've got four points for our learning this morning, and then really the message will be yours. And I worked really hard on this to make sure that all the words started with D, okay? The first thing that we need to realize is if we're going to better our example, we have to be devout. Be devout. If you go to that next slide, Michael, be devout. Now, what does it mean to be devout? Have you spent time processing that? Uh, if you look at the, 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 the definition of this word in any, any dictionary, it would say that being devout is being defined as a deep religious commitment. A deep religious commitment. Not a deep spiritual commitment per se, but a deep religious commitment. And how do you show a deep religious commitment really is the question. I would say number one is probably most important and glaringly obvious is attendance. Right? That's how you show a deep commitment. So when the church gathers together, I don't think it's by surprise that, that the scripture says in Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of such. 
If we're going to show that we're devout, our presence is vitally, vitally important. Because people recognize that and they see that. Where are you going today? Instead of jogging around Mission Viejo Lake, you're going to the church house. Amen? People recognize that and they see that. So attendance is so, so important. And I think we've got, let me preach this morning. We've gotten out of the habit when it comes to our attendance a lot of times. And if we're going to show people that we're devout and that we're good examples, our attendance is so, so vitally important at the church gatherings. What else? Well, we show people that we're devout through our charity. How are we loving on people? Are we giving to people? Are we helping them out? I love what Robert said this morning. You know, we're a very wealthy country and region. How are we showing our charity towards others? And people recognize that and they see that. That's what it means to be devout. But sometimes I think we're so interested in protecting what we have that we forget sometimes. So charity is another way. What's another way to be devout so people can see this? Well, a life of prayer. We should be praying any and everywhere on all occasions. You know, growing up, I used to be so embarrassed because after church, we would all go to Ryan's, right? And what it is, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. I, I don't know if they have many out here. There's one that, that they have out here, all-you-can-eat buffet. And what you do is you got to get there and you got to beat the Baptist because they take up all the seats if you're not there early enough. And one of the things we used to do is we used to sit around the table and we would pray out loud, right? And if Grandpa was praying, it'd be really loud, right? And I remember being a young boy, I'd be so embarrassed by that, right? Because the waitress would have to just pause and wait there and wait for us to be done praying. And then as I got older, I got out of the habit because I was embarrassed by it, right? And I would use the theology, well, Jesus said, go pray in your closet. So that's what I'm going to do. But there's something about public prayer that is so powerful. And I would encourage us to make sure that we pray in public. Not for the purpose of people hearing us, but just not being ashamed of it. So when we pray in public, people go, wow, that person is pretty devout and religious. Don't be afraid of prayer. Use it as a tool. Don't be ashamed of it. And then uh, here's one. You know, when Jesus went door knocking, that was a joke. Um, when he went door knocking, instead of meeting people in public places, right, when he went door knocking, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm bothering my elders this morning. We had, a, we had an elders meeting, and we're working on vacation Bible school. One of the things that we're going to do is we're going to do like a door-knocking uh, campaign. And when we were talking about this, I said to the elders, I'm not doing any door-knocking, right? Learn two things. One, you don't tell your bosses what you're not going to do. Amen? Um, <laughs> so I'll knock as many doors as you want me to. <laughs> so now, because I made that statement, they don't think I'm as devout as I should be. I'm just joking. I know that's the but what effort are we putting forth to show people how devout and religiously committed we are? Um, one of the things that I learned through coaching basketball, I coach girls basketball every year and I coach two teams. You know when the events take place? Saturday and Sunday. That's it. And if you miss out on Sunday, you've missed out on a lot because typically a lot of the tournaments uh, take place on Sunday morning. And my daughter is good. I'm prepping her now. She's going to carry me all the way. No. <laughs> anyway, my daughter is a great basketball player. She made nationals this year and competed in the state competitions. 
She plays power forward. She's tall. I don't know where she got her height from. But anyway, they always want Alayla there on Sunday mornings to play basketball. It's so bad now that the coaches will call me. The directors of the program will call me and say, Jason, can Alayla please be there? She can go to church later. And you know what I say every single time? Absolutely not. And then they end, losing, they end up losing the game, but that's, that's, you know. But we're making it a point, and people are seeing that. And what's so amazing is now we've started a trend. So a lot of other players don't play on Sunday either because they're at church. And what we're doing is we're communicating a, a message that, look, we take this thing seriously, and we're devout, and we're committed. So we're in the church house on Sunday morning, not at the ball game. And I think people respect that, and I think they honor that. That's just my experience, and my opinion may have a different, different view on that. Point number two is this. We've got to learn to be different. And what I mean by be different is we, we've got to be, we, we can't be scared to move in a different direction than the direction the culture is moving. You see, it takes courage to stand up for righteousness in a world that is full of sinfulness. And I want to make this point very clear. It's okay to disagree with certain lifestyles. If you know where I'm going, it's okay to disagree if you're different. We live in a culture that says, look, if you don't believe and move and, and adhere to what everybody is doing and saying culturally, you're wrong and you're a bigot. But I would say it's okay to be different and to challenge that a little bit. Young people, it's okay to dress modestly. You know, I have a 12-year-old daughter now going on 16. And right now, I know she's watching. I love you, Alayla, okay? Sermon example. Kids can't stand when you have sermon. I'm going to do it anyway. Anyway, um, she, she's really into fashion right now because she's going to middle school, right? So daddy takes her shopping, which is probably the wrong thing to do. Amen. We go in there, and she wants some shorts. I take the shorts off the rack, and they're about this big. I'm like, it's made out of two stitches, right? And, and, and you look in all the racks, and all of them are the same length. And I'm going, what is going on? And I say, Layla, what's up with this? She says, look, everybody wears that. And I said, everybody but you, right? It's okay to be different. And I've got a good daughter. She, she loves her daddy, and she does not complain about that. And she says, daddy, you're right. She may be lying, but that's okay. I'll take it. It's okay to dress modestly. You don't have to follow that just because everybody else is doing it. Be different. That's how you show your good example. And fellas, the same way, you know? You don't have to follow the latest fashion trends that everybody is doing, right? right? Uh, not too long ago, guys were wearing skirts. That was one of the fashions. You think I'm joking. Or pants that look like dresses. And everybody was doing it for a minute. And now, every, if you notice all the boys, and I'm a fuss now, they wear long T-shirts that come all the way down here. You've seen it. You don't have to do that. Be you. Be different. And people take notice of that. Now, I'm not saying be so different that it's awkward, right? But you, you can be different. And people watch that and they notice that. It's okay to eat at Subway instead of Nobu. That's a big difference, isn't it? It's okay to drive a Kia rather than a Tesla. It's okay to dress up on Sundays when you go to church. <laughs> Am I right about it? 
You know, it was interesting. We had our memorial service yesterday, and I put a suit on. And what's so interesting now is we live in a time culturally where the time you put on suits is at memorial services or weddings now, right? It was so funny that uh, I wore my suit, and then I pulled into my driveway, or I was pulling out of my driveway, and I have this neighbor. He's nosy, but I love him anyway. He sits there, and whenever I <laughs> raise my garage door, he's always looking in there to see what I got. Like, I got some kind of operation going on, right? I, nothing's in there but boxes and army gear. But every time <laughs> I raise it up, he's sitting there like, you know. So anyway, I come out, and I'm getting in the car, and I have my suit on. And I hear, oh, you sure do look sharp today. I said, well, thank you. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the church house for the memorial service. He said, you sure do look good. I said, well, thank you, sir. And I go on to the memorial service. I come back. My other neighbor, right, is looking at me. Where'd you go today, right? You, you sure look nice today. And it's amazing, right? Because it's a little different. You typically don't see that. I went to the grocery store. I had a whole bunch of stuff in my hands waiting at the checkout line. People let me cut them to get in front of them all because I had a suit on, in my opinion. I don't know. Maybe it's, I don't know. Anyway. All I'm saying, church, is it's okay to be different. And when you're different, people see that. They see that and they recognize that. So I may start wearing suits again every day to church on Sunday. Got to get some bigger ones, though. I gained a little weight. Anyway, point number three is be demonstrative. Be demonstrative. People would rather, here's what I do know, people would rather see a sermon any day than hear one. I hate that as a preacher. But people would rather see a sermon rather than hear one any day. You notice Jesus was a man who demonstrated a life of love to non-believers. And typically when he preached, it was to the believers, the disciples already. You see, what he was in the business of doing is showing non-believers that he loved them. Right? So how do we learn to love? And I've spent some time really processing this. How do we learn the core elements of love? In my opinion, I think we learn the core elements of love starting with our families. If you think about it, right? If you were blessed to have a mother and father, they taught you what love looked like or what love was supposed to be. If you were raised with a bunch of brothers and sisters, you really know how to love the unlovable at times. Amen? So we learn about love from our family units. And as we transition into chapter 3, I think Peter says something very interesting here. If you go to this next slide, uh, Michael. Um, actually, that's the wrong slide, but leave that one. Leave that one. Leave that one, okay? Um, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor uh, as the supreme authority. I want to use that. I want to I I fill that in. Let's process that. I think the, the word that I want to focus on is, is submission. Submission. Now, that word submission is a tough one, and I know why I put this slide here. Because we're going we're to look at a passage where Paul talks about the importance of submission. And I know when we use this word submission, it's a word that we don't like. What do you mean submit? What do you mean submit, right? But I love what it says here. We're submitting. Why? Because it's for the Lord's sake. That's why we submit. Not because we're fearful, right? Not because we're scared, but we're submitting for the Lord's sake. And then, let's go to this next slide. And then we see this very famous passage, right? This passage that sometimes we use out of context. This passage that we sometimes use to bash 
and to hurt, right? And you all know this passage very well. Wives, in the same way, submit. You know, uh, Kirk Cameron was on um, the Today Show not too long ago, and he caught a lot of heat because he said, look, the way I understand Scripture is it says that women should submit to their husbands. And the newscaster said, submit? What are you talking about? Submit? What are you you saying? That's, That's the poor choice of words. And he's saying, I'm just saying what the Scripture says. So I want to spend some time with this text. We're talking about how do we learn to love as Jesus loved. Well, I think it starts with, with understanding love within the home or the, the house context, if that makes sense. The very core element, I think that God uses the family unit to demonstrate what love is supposed to look like, in my opinion, right? So one of the things that he says here, he starts with wives. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that... If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over with a whole bunch of words. That's not what it says. So that may be won over by the behavior of their wives. Now, I can say this because Mary's not here this morning. (laughs) Matter of fact, I won't say it. I take that back. I caught myself. Look. I do know that at times, husbands can be hard-headed. Say amen if you can. Okay. Guess it's just me. Um, husbands can be hard-headed at times. And sometimes we, we, we think we know where we're supposed to be going and what we're supposed to be doing, but we have no idea. And I've only been married 13 years, so I haven't been married that long. There's many of you who have been married 50-plus years, and you understand it way better than I do. But what I do know now is that women run circles around us because they're so intelligent and they see things in details that we don't see. So a lot of times the way Mary functions, and I'm going to say this about my beautiful wife, is she wants me to do something, but I'm not paying attention to it. And because I'm not paying attention to it, she gets upset about it. So classic example, the other day, I can say this, Mary's not here. She asked me to wash the dog. I'm talking about like three times a day, right? So last week, Jason, can you wash the dog? Can you wash the dog? And then I was like, yeah, I'll get to it. And then it got to, I was watching the Golden State Warriors game. She stood in front of the TV. Hey, Jason, you going to wash the dog today? I said, yeah, I'll get to it. I'm busy. Next day, Jason, can you wash the dog? I don't know why. I was just busy, right? And then she strategically sent the kids up. Uh, Daddy? Mommy said, you you need to wash the dog. And I said, okay, I'll get to it, get to it. I come home uh, yesterday, and what I find out is uh, I look at the dog, and I'm like, the dog looks spotless today. I mean, look, look, her coat is shiny and everything. And uh, Mary says, Jason, did you notice anything? And I said, yeah, Um, the dog is clean. Did you take it to PetSmart? And she said, no, I was outside washing her myself. You know what that did to me? I said, oh, no. Oh, I felt about this big, right? You see, when she was talking to me about it, it didn't, it sounds bad, it didn't mean as much as when she actually went out and did the effort of doing it. Then I felt this big. I said, oh, man, I'm so, so sorry. There's something about the behavior of wives that have an impact on the husband way more 
this sounds bad, but way more than the words. And the reason I say that is because of what the Scripture says. And if you continue on in, in, in chapter 3, it'll say, look, look, it's by the quiet spirit of the woman and by the behavior of the woman that really makes an impact on the husband. So if you want to get through to your husband, it's by your, by your behavior. And I'm telling you, when Mary watched the dog, I felt this big. I said, okay, once a week on Saturday, I'm watching the dog, right? It was by her behavior. And I, I want to make this clear. There's many of you here this morning who have husbands that aren't faithful members of a church that are not Christians. I'd really encourage you to think about this verse and to process it. Because I know you're so anxious and excited to get your husband to become a member of the church and become a Christian. And all you do is talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and talk. And I get it. And sometimes you get frustrated and get angry and upset because they're just not listening. I would encourage you to watch the language and just show with your actions. You be in the church house whenever the church house is open. You be at church events whenever church events are going on. You be in young families gatherings whenever there's young family gatherings. And then your husband's going to say, you don't love me. You don't ever want to spend time with me, do you? And you say, yeah, I'll spend time with you, but you got to come over here with me while we spend time together. And some of you know where I'm coming from, amen? There's something powerful about that, and I would encourage you to really process that and to think about that together, and most importantly, to pray. To pray, 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 and God may be able to do something with that. And if you hadn't read through this text, I would really encourage you to do so. And then Peter goes on to say this in the next passage, not just stopping with the women. Next slide, please. Uh, he, he moves on to the husband's really teaching us how to love, right, and to model this. He says this to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Woo! I know some people that can't stand that weaker, right? Oh, no. What, what kind of translation is that, right? Scripture says as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And a lot of times, fellas, we use this passage out of context, right? The reason you're so emotional is you're just a weaker vessel. I've tried that, and that doesn't work. That does not work. I'm surprised I'm standing before you today because of that, right? And then the Lord blessed me with the house of all ladies, so I know what to say and not to say. Amen. So I've been able to process this text thoroughly, uh, and what I understand is that, look, God made men and women different from a biological standpoint. He made men with bi bigger muscles for the most part, because there's some ladies out there that <laughs> to knock some men out. But anyway, uh, for the most part, men are made differently. They're stronger. They don't have the same uh, uh, hormones as women have. There's estrogen, right, and testosterone. And because of those differences, we have physical differences. And in my opinion, women have a tough go at life. They really do, right? And sometimes we live, we, I'm just going to fuss for a minute, we live in a culture where we say that everybody is equal, everybody's on the same level, and I couldn't believe, I, I, I completely agree with that. I don't think there's any difference between a man and woman intellectually. I know that. My wife is going to, she's getting ready to start on her, her doctorate pretty soon and be an adjunct professor, right? So I know better than to say that, right? Emotionally, she is strong. 
So I know there's not much of a difference there, but I know physically there's a huge difference. And women deal with different things than men deal with. And because we live in this society that says, we're, we're, we're women, I'm a woman, hear me roar. Sometimes men say, okay, if you like that, we're going to treat you the same way as I treat my fellas, right? And then we get in trouble when we do that, don't we, right? So scripture says here, if you want to model love, make sure you be gentle with your wives. You be gentle with your wives and dwell with them, as scripture says, according to knowledge. And respect them as the weaker partner. And I think what the text means there is just different physically. And they deal with a host of different things. So we've got to, we've got to cherish and be kind and gentle and sweet with our wives. And I think that's what it means to, to really understand this concept of love and to start modeling it according to my understanding as a 35-year-old who's only been married 13 years, right? Some of y'all are saying, Jason, you have no idea. You have a long way to go, brother. And I respect that and I get that, but that's just my two cents as I look at this text on what it means to model love and to look like. I think it starts within the home. And then when we get that right, we can really start to spread that out to our communities. But here's what I do know. A lot of our homes are in shambles right? We're constantly bickering and fighting with one another, not getting along, and then when we step out the doors, we say, we're going to model the love of Christ. It doesn't work that well. Really, we got to get that right. We got to get that right, and then when we get that right, we'll see, we'll see a difference. We'll see a difference. So lastly, I want to, I want to leave you with, uh, we talked about be demonstrative, and I think we demonstrate our love and starting in our family units, and then lastly, we've got to learn to be defenseless. I'm preaching long. I said I was going to be short. Bear with me. Be defenseless. I think this is the toughest one. I think this is the toughest one. To let yourself be wronged when you're innocent. You ever been falsely accused before? It's not fun, is it? But you know, this was the message of Jesus while he was on earth, right? He was falsely accused. He was innocent. Jesus didn't say, let's overthrow the powers that existed during the time of Domitian. He said, let yourself be wronged and falsely accused. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, and we'll close with this text. Ooh, this one's a tough one. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Write that one down, highlight it, underline it. Offer a blessing rather than a curse when people insult you. I have short man complex. You know what that is, right? It's like a chihuahua dog that thinks they're really a Rottweiler, right? I, str I struggle with that big time because I'm a little in stature, right? So I carry myself like I'm a Rottweiler even though I look like a chihuahua, if that makes sense, right? I had guys that used to try to pick on me when I was little. In particular, I used to play football with guys that were way bigger than me and they used to try to poke at me and make fun of me and insult me, right? So I had this guy on the football team. His name was Laquanus. I don't know where that name came from, but that was his name, Laquanus, right? Huge guy. And he used to pick at me and make fun of me all the time. And one day I just got fed up and I got so upset. We were at football practice and we were running laps. So as Laquanus was running, I ran behind him and I kicked the back of his leg. And he went flying. And I said, that's what you get. <laughs> right? Laquanus picked me up body slammed me WWF style, and then he took his two fingers and jammed them into my eyeballs, right? 
It was so embarrassing. My brother was out there. I started crying for the coach. Coach, get him off of me. Get him off, right? I learned a valuable lesson that day. I did. First of all, don't pick on anybody that's twice your size, number one. But then number two is when people insult you, offer a blessing rather than retaliation, right? Offer a blessing. So by way of uh, invitation this morning, I want to leave you with some, some practical examples, something that you can implement this week that will help you on learning to better your example. Besides these four items, what can you start this week? As we close, write these things down. First of all, when someone insults you this week, and I know they will, when someone insults you this week, I want you not to get angry, but to say bless you, okay? So when somebody says something to you that's just so rude and mean and it hurts your feelings, don't get angry, just say bless you or, or bless your heart. Can you do that this week? Bless your heart. I would encourage you to do that week, this week and try it. Point number two is I want you, husbands and wives, number one, wives, if your husbands are being hard-headed and you're frustrated with them and you're upset because they're not obeying the word or not doing something that is right in the sight of God, I just want you to demonstrate the lifestyle. Try not to complain. Try not to, to get upset with them and talk them, talk them, talk them into submission, right? I would just encourage you just to demonstrate. And that's it. And pray. And see what that does for your relationships. And husbands, this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be extra gentle with your wives this week. I want you to tell them every single day this week, you are beautiful and you are special. Can you do that this week for your wife? See what it does. And if, if, if you have a wife like mine, she'll say, what do you want, right? <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> but try it. I would encourage you to do that once a day, every day this week. Honey, I just want to let you know that you are special and you are so beautiful. And watch what it does. You be, I think, I, Mary, you're special and beautiful. <laughs> what do you want? And then lastly, here's as we close this week. Here, you know, the scripture says we've got to obey those who are in authority. You remember, Jesus didn't try to overthrow Domitian and the government and things of that na nature. And he said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, right? Jesus didn't run for political office, as Ed and I talk about from time to time. He didn't do that. He could have. So what I want you to practice this week, you know we're living in crazy times politically right now, right? It seems like we have two choices, Trump or Hillary. <laughs> or maybe a third choice, not to do anything at all, right? And you know what we do a lot of times, especially on social media, we begin to share forth our thoughts on certain candidates and directions. And, and I think there's a Christian message in all of that. But I do know that it's often contentious when you start talking politics, right? And who you support and who you don't support and why this and why that. Here's what I want you to do this week, because those conversations will come up. I simply want you to give the Christian answer and the Christian perspective. And here's what the Christian answer and the Christian perspective is to this crazy political climate. Whoever is selected... Whoever's selected, whoever's the emperor, if you will, whoever's the president, I'm going to pray for. I'm going to live my life as a good Christian. I'm going to serve my fellow man, and I'll respect whoever is in office, even if I disagree with their policies. That's the answer. And I would encourage you to practice that this week and see what it does with those contentious conversations. The Lord wants us to submit.
even though we're living in tough times and we need to model love. So we have a song of invitation selected here this morning. If there is anyone that needs to respond to the message, we'll have elders, some of our elders in the front, some will be in the back. I would encourage you to respond to the message this morning. Whatever your needs or concerns are, if you'd like to put the Lord on in baptism, repent of your sins, you're welcome to come forward together while we stand and sing the song of invitation.